0: Welcome to LifeList, a birding podcast.
1: Hello and welcome, everybody. We are back with another episode of LifeList, a birding podcast. I am here with my co-host and good friend, Alvaro Jaramillo. How are you doing hey. today, Al?
2: Good, good. I'm, I'm a good friend now. I think you upgraded <laughs> think or the way you said that something
1: i wanted to emphasize
2: but i I like
1: it yeah i wanted to emphasize you know we have something a little different today uh another good friend online with alvaro and i is marshall iliff uh well known from ebert marshall grew up in annapolis maryland uh, where he did the old yellow book uh, to the Birds of Maryland status checklist. Uh, he has done all sorts of different field jobs over the years. Breeding bird atlas in Nevada. He was the hawk watcher at Kipto Peak when he wasn't running around chasing vagrants. At uh, Kipto Peak Virginia, that is. He was a, a tour guide led, leading tours for vent. Uh, For a number of years in the early 2000s, lived in Southern California and uh, did a lot of Baja birding. He now lives in Massachusetts and has been there since 2006 uh, when he started at eBird as a project leader. And he wears a lot of hats there still. uh, Focuses a lot on the review and data quality process and on maintaining and revising eBird's taxonomy, which is a thankless job if ever there was one. He lives in dead mass with his wife and two dogs and his son and birds whenever and wherever he can. Marshall, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. It's uh, great to join you guys here in George's voice. Just uh, <laughs> and seeing his face takes me back to today's Birding Maryland and Virginia together, Uh George's dad was a was a giant in that region so it was it was really fun to run around with the Armisteads back in the day and Alvaro I've seen far too little of you but this is a great chance to uh have a cool conversation.
2: Yeah. Cool no, day. definitely. No and you guys really do go back like you know you're birding buddies, you know. I um it's it's kind of cool to see you two you're sort of chatting together in this in this venue so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been looking forward to it. I knew we were going to get Marshall on here at some point. Like when I was a teenager, you know, birding, there was not many other young birders around. And so I, I'd like heard of Marshall for a number of years before, uh, we finally actually started to, to do some birding together. And then we did a lot of birding in Maryland, Virginia, especially Delmarva, but, uh, a number of spots running around, getting into trouble. Um, and, uh, and yeah, seeing all, all sorts of stuff. But uh yeah, his uh his legend has only grown since then, Marshall. Uh, so well, yeah. th-
2: your story about teenage birders, it's exactly the same story every teenage birder has and since when I was a teenage birder, there were very few of us. And then I met another <laughs> teenage birder and we birded together for ages you know i mean it's my story it's my stories of teenage murders
1: yeah well i don't know about just, today i yeah, feel like today you have a core you know, yeah
2: there's more you think oh yeah
1: there's way more man
2: way more or and, and they're connected, more connected. Today. yeah yeah today, exactly.
0: today they know how to get in touch with each other back in the day i i like i would read about george and then we had we were like these ships that passed just like just out of sight of each other repeatedly to the point where i did you know, I did your dad's Dorchester County Big Day Run yes. the weekend before you did it, but we never did it together. That's right. Yeah, um, we went and twitched the Ross's gull at the Back River sewage treatment plant, like slightly out of sync with each other, and never crossed paths. <laughs> I, I mean, it group. wasn't until I was out of college that we actually sat down and had a conversation.
1: That's right. I like, oh, yeah, oh,
2: we should go birding together sometime.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing tomorrow?
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's that's a cool stories, you know. I mean, uh, the I think um, also teenage birders, and maybe back in the day, teenage birders had this um, amazing immediate bond, right, when you met, but also this rivalry, you know, in 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 that you're. I think particularly if you're a teenage boy, you're like. I'm going to show him I'm really good at this, you know. Oh, no, you know, I'm going to find a good bird before George does or whatever. Which he did that, pretty routinely,
1: I might add. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and we, I think that that interplay, though, while it, it might come from a weird place of sort of teenage land, it does actually make you work
1: yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. It kind uh, of pushes you, push them, each other, you know? Push.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so, all you teenage birders out there, Stop communicating and getting in touch with each other and just go and bird and try to outdo your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Key to success.
1: <laughs> mm, life advice from Alvaro You. Yeah, yeah. Like right. it. Nice. Well, well advice. That,
2: that's not the podcast you want to hear.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Could room. be pretty interesting.
2: <laughs> Could be interesting, but it's not good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things, Marshall, when I think of you, is I think of big days. I think of, uh, I mean, you guys for for years. Um, the Sapsucker team, Sapsucker, always had something cooking, still do. But um, and I, you know, I remember the record-setting big day. Well, I, I love that picture of you, like you guys all like some gas station or something, looking exhausted and and happy all at the same time. And I know that you took a run, uh, just what last week, um, at the Massachusetts big day record. Um, maybe you want to tell folks a little bit about that. And we wanted to talk about this crazy Arctic turn thing that's been going on. And I know you bumped into a couple. Um, so yeah, maybe tell us about, start with telling us a little bit about your big day, how that went, what that was like. And, um, you know, I know you, did you do most of the driving? Because usually Mar- Marshall's hard to get out from behind the wheel when there's a big day going on. He's a good big day driver, but man, you better put your seatbelt on.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a, it was a heck of a weekend. It's uh it's an opportunity I don't get as often now as a parent. So, so I was planning like way ahead to say, what day can we do this? Let's, let's lock it down. Uh, Jeremiah Trimble is a, a real good friend of mine. Um, also his dad. And uh, Liam Waters, so the four of us, uh, cooked up this big day plan. We had one day that we could do it. So it was May 15th on Sunday, a day after the global big day, which was unfortunate, but schedules are schedules. So, um, and Jeremiah and I had done, what, three or four prior prior runs and always kind of got in the 180 to 190 realm. So 200 has been out there as the, the goal for Massachusetts big day for a while. Um, And the really fun piece of this one was like coming off the two years that we've come off with the, with the pandemic was that the start for this big day was two years ago when everybody was shut down, nobody was seeing each other. um, And Jeremiah came up with a social distance big day. And the idea was that he, like, he would start in the West, run the Western route, then we would all like take a breather. During the theoretical drive time, then when 8.30 hit, someone would pick up like what you would be doing from 8.30 to 9.30. And then there'd be a pause. Someone else would pick up like the Boston section. We tried to include lots of people. So we had like lots of friends that were doing little segments in and around Boston, the ones that couldn't travel very far. And then I did this Bristol County section where I, my patch gooseberry neck is. And then someone else did Plymouth and then Cape Cod. So, so we did this whole big day like separately, but together as a team.
1: Sort of a segmented big day, huh?
0: Yeah. That's cool. I don't know if anyone who's ever tried that before, but it was, it was really fun for that moment. And we were all, you know, we had a shared eBird account so we could watch the totals come up and sort of see what we, see what we needed. And, uh, and we got 188 on that. And that huh. sort of made me say like, holy mackerel, like we weren't even looking for birds for half this day because that was the theoretical drive time where we couldn't count anything. So, so it got us thinking like, what if we actually run that route that we did and, and try for it? So we tried it last year that, um, that trip we, uh, (laughs) to George's point about put your seatbelt on if Marshall's driving, we actually had our participant get sort of so sick, um, on that (laughs) drive that we had to abort the day. Um, we had to abort the day. We had someone else jump in for the rest of it, but it wasn't really an official big day. So this year we tried to try to do a good one. Um, scouted it, scouted it a lot, um, had a great, had a great run. Like we found almost everything we wanted to, the, the big variation was we went down on the South coast section that I know really well. And then we finished at Monomoy Mm. where you have to book a boat in advance, have a captain take you out to this, uh, really special part of the state. It's kind of the the peninsula that sticks off the southeasternmost point of Cape Cod legendary
1: shorebird spot, legendary. for.
0: um, yeah, it almost would connect to Nantucket, um, but there's a little channel in between. Uh, but yeah, it's a like great vagrant spot, great shorebird spot, um, and is a great spot to see all the seabirds and shorebirds in the distance if you don't have coastal fog. <laughs> but we were socked in fog; you could barely oh. see your hand in front of your face. So, um, so we ended up with 197. Super Ooh. happy with that total, but it was three fewer than we wanted, and we had. Basically, no migrants on the ground. We missed Northern Parula of all things, which is wow. doesn't really breed regularly in Massachusetts, so you got to get it as a migrant. But that's an indication of just how poor the migrant day was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other migrants we had were Cape May and Blackpoll, so we missed Bay-breasted Tennessee. Wow, all, all these other things, and then yeah, we had a hard time with the fog, so we ended up missing like at the shorebird epicenter of the East Coast. We missed. Ruddy Turnstone, Shortbill Dowager, and Red Knot, and those were those are hard ones to take on board for us. But uh, but overall, it was it was a great day. It was proof that like we got the route now that we want to use next year for the for the inevitable two hundred run.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, I hope you got Carolina Wren because there's one in your backyard right now sounding <laughs> off. So yeah,
0: we did. But there's also Parallel in my backyard now, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> we did not get that.
1: Yeah. Wow, well, that's cool. I mean, you you got the route down. You got you you've got it locked in now. You just need a little help from the weather and and a couple birds. Um, so I'm sure you guys will will hit that magical 200 mark. That's uh, that's awesome. What were some of the highlights of the day?
0: For for me, the highlights always come down to I've I've, I've started to think of like big days are sort of the final exam in birding. It's like you got to come, you got to bring your A game. You got to bring all the knowledge you have of, you know, where birds are likely to occur. What's your probability of being able to, to find a bird in a given moment. And then after all this planning, you got to be sharp for 24 hours. So it, it's, you know, I do a lot of I've got a plane flying over, but it, I do a lot of birding where I'm sort of with a friend and we're, we're talking and, you know, I'm sort of paying 75% or 80% attention. And, um, but on a big day, it's like one hundred percent. So it's it's kinda of fun to get out there and call out everything you hear and you know, have your friends doing the same thing. Um, so for me the moments were like driving down the highway at highway speeds saying, Jeremiah, we're about to cross a patch of water, I'll look left, you look right for Bufflehead, we got two seconds to spot it go. Two pair of buffleheads sitting on the thing and the like right there. <laughs> Not fast enough for anyone else to see it but he and one other person got the bufflehead head at highway speed no slowing down um same thing like going out cape cod we missed broadwing talk all day long uh, we ran it in my wife's car because she has the sunroof and a little more room. Nice
1: key key and, feature
0: and the whole time you know liam waters and i are looking up he's he's younger has sharper eyes so he was the one that was like finally adult broadwing right overhead um, and this was like the last chance we had for Broadwing talk and a real, a pretty high bird. That was like a good pick out the, out the car, Clutch. Uh, the car top. Um, Clutch and I guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, for, for me, kind of my favorite, my favorite moment of my contribution was right at the end. We'd, we'd birded Monomoy. We'd seen all the birds out there. We were coming back into shore. We thought it was too dark for anything, but we'd missed lesser blackback Gull. And all the, all the gull flocks out there, they were, I know you guys like gulls. They were kind of the wrong kind of gull flock. They were like <laughs> lots of great blackbacks, one or two herrings. We needed the lots of herrings, one or two great blackbacks type flock. And as we were coming in, there was one flock sitting. It's almost dark. It's fogged in. And we were like, Captain, please, can we stop here? We think this is it. Pulled over, got the scopes out, lesser blackback. There was a turn flock sitting off to the right. I shifted to that immature bony sitting in that. So those were our last two birds of daylight. And, uh, wow. Yeah. It was, a, it was kind of just one of those final, like last ditch, little bit of birding intuition. Um, we, we got two more on the list that we would have missed.
1: That's, that's awesome. I love the concept of the wrong kind of gull flock as well. Alvaro's that's probably setting his mind. Like, man, that's where you're going to get the kelp go. That's where you're going to get the kelp call Marshall. Come on, man. Dial it in. No, there's,
2: there's the wrong kind of shearwater flock too. I mean, we get that here, where um, um, you know, if it's if it's all suities, it sometimes be thousands and thousands of suities. But don't look for anything weird in the suities other than maybe manx shearwater. But if you've got a big flock of pinkfoots, that's where the weirdos are. I I don't know how that happens, why it happens, but you can see this kind of thing play out over and over again. I remember Vancouver birders used to say the good, the good songbird vagrants are always with, um, bush tit flocks, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, Hmm, I'm not sure I ever saw that exactly. I wasn't living there enough time, but, um, you definitely, you know, um, you'll find, um, Lucy's warblers, you know, vagrants with bush tit flocks and, Would you be thinking of bush tit flocks as something you know to look at, really? If you're a Westerner, you just tend to think of, oh, look where all the Townsend's warblers are, or look wherever. But there are these flocking mechanisms that we don't quite understand exactly what they are, but you just see the patterns. And there's some flocks, and some Gulf flocks, some shearwater flocks, some whatever flocks that are just really good for drawing in something unusual, Uh, or 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 not unusual, like in the in terms of. Lesser blackback is just a standard kind of pattern, you know. They they'd rather hang out with herring gulls than black, you know, great blackbacks. And it's kind of an interesting thing to expand on. Yeah, you know,
1: makes me think of the there. of the blackbird winter blackbird flocks around here in the mid Atlantic. It's like you can uh-huh. you can get like a pure flock of common grackles. And like you see this group in the distance, and you think, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be good. There's going to be yellow headed in there. There's going to be, you know, something, something good. Then you get there. It's just pure common grackles. And those flocks very often just, that's not what you're looking for. You know, you want the mixed flocks. Um, same, same kind of idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, the right kind of flock. Yeah. That's the name of uh, Marshall's next
1: book. <laughs> there you go. Right kind of flock. mm mm-hmm. Nice, so but Marshall, did you guys get like this Arctic turn thing was crazy, right? Like that, like uh, if I'm, I'm sure a lot of folks know that this massive, I don't even know what you'd call it, a, an Arctic turn event happened. You profiled it really well in your eBird list from from uh, go- from your patch there, in Gooseberry Neck. If uh, folks are looking for a good synopsis. Um,
2: people out west have no idea what you're talking
1: about yeah that's what I'm <laughs> figuring And even in the middle of the country too <laughs> you know? explain more yeah so yeah Marshall set that up for folks like what happened with this arctic turn thing
0: yeah so I'll I'll go through like my week and day of arctic turn thing because um, there's some setup to it um, so you know it's early May we're waiting for like southerly winds that are going to bring you know warblers and Tanager's and things up here and instead what we got in early may was this like persistent northeasterly flow you know sort of cold um here in new england it was it was actually sunny but blowing pretty hard out of the northeast but like not the right kind of winds to to give good seabirds up here um there was a nor'easter 15 years ago before i moved to the state that was like the right kind it blew for days and it grounded all but were pushed ashore. All these ropes and Arctic turns. This system was not that for New England, but it was that for the Mid-Atlantic. And so this was like a detached low-pressure system, basically sitting off Virginia and North Carolina, and like screaming forty mile an hour plus uh, northeast winds and bad weather. That um, was basically just angling from way east of Cape Cod all the way to Cape May. Um, so a few of us were texting back and forth like, do we think what do we think's going to happen with this storm? Will there be ups? Maybe some Rosia turns displaced? Is it too early or not for an Arctic turn event to, to happen? Um, and as the as the system went on for a few days, a few Arctic turns started to be seen by like the really sharp sea watchers in Cape May. But honestly, most people that are birding then are sort of still in warbler mode. There's not a lot of people looking at the coast. The weather was poor on the coast, so we didn't really know what was happening later in the week. Um, some Virginians who were really hot to get, Virgi- you know, Arctic turned in Virginia, found a couple. And then, um, there was a report of like 30 to 50 Arctic turns sitting on the beach at Chinkiti, Yes, which was like, okay, yeah. okay. Like something, this is is really serious. Yeah, something really different is happening if that's the case. Um, and so on a, about Thursday, the weather, the, the wind slacked off, like the system sort of moved out. Um, we were back to like good passerine migration on Thursday. Everyone was like, Oh, finally warblers are here. You know, all the birders are excited about that. I, because I'm doing this big day had planned to take, to take Friday off. So I had to drop my son at preschool and then I get sort of a late start and go down and start scouting, um, you know, scouting for like white eyed Vireo territories and things we want on the big day for my section of the route. Um, at the same time, you know, texting a little bit with friends, like what's going to happen to all these Arctic terns that are like stuck in the mid Atlantic bite. This area is kind of South of, you know, South of Long Island, you know, down to Cape Hatteras. There's, a, there's way more Arctic terns down there. We think, what are they going to do now? Cause ordinarily they'd be way to the East. Some of them would be doing an overland flight. Some of them probably flying up to the Maritimes to breed. Um, so you know, I'm like an hour into my scouting, and the the Western Massachusetts text group pops up. Got two turns on a lake here. We think they're common. Haven't ruled out Arctic yet. And I just stopped what I was doing. I was like, "Be ready. These are Arctic turns, probably." You know, there's way more Arctic turns in the system. Like, do not dismiss this. I immediately called the people who reported it and said, "Ed Newmuth, make sure you look at that turn because I think it might be an Arctic." And within a few minutes, like they texted back a picture. Yeah, it's an Arctic turn. At the same time, there was like news of an Arctic turn in Northwest Connecticut. And I'm still like, okay, cool. There's an Arctic turn thing happening. But I didn't really like snap into action. I was still like in big day mindset. Got to find another white-eyed vireo, <laughs> And I was driving to like my next spot to check. And Nick Bonomo, I guess, saw saw my texting and called and was like, There are 27 Arctic terns in a single flock in northern Connecticut now. Wow. And I said, all right, this is something crazy is happening. You know, sent notes to a few more people that were like close to inland reservoirs Said, get out there and check these reservoirs like something weird is going on. And the thing that was strange was the weather was nice. It was like generally sunny, sort of calm weather. And usually when when turn fallouts happen in this part of the world, it's like a supercell thunderstorm system or like a hurricane. That, right. They got to get, them. they
1: got to get knocked down from up high or they got to get pushed in. Right.
0: Right. So it, it wasn't intuitive. And the other thing about this was nobody was seeing like white wing scoter, brant, red throated loon, redneck, grebe, you know, shorebirds, the other things that tend to get knocked down. So this was like, this was like an Arctic turn specific event. Um, anyway, now, his report of 27 snapped me into action. I was, two miles from this patch that I care about a lot and that I've looked for Arctic turns specifically during every little easterly blow a lot. And I went out there, walked to the tip where there was a turn flock immediately saw Arctic turns there. Um, And I think in the end, Massachusetts ended up with 50 plus inland Arctics. Connecticut ended up with 70 plus. Wow. And if you pull up the eBird map for the recent week, it's just insane. It's just blanketed with Arctic turns all up and down the Hudson river, all, all throughout Eastern Pennsylvania, where I know George connected with some, and it was just, just like a, an Arctic turn event that is, doesn't match anything that's ever happened before, or doesn't match anything that we've been able to mobilize birders to, to, to document in this way before, and that's, to me, that's kind of an interesting topic. Like, this, like Massachusetts people could have missed this entirely if we weren't so well connected with text messages and so tuned to what people were seeing in virginia um and kind of what was going on with the system it was a one-day event like there was a little echo for the next couple of days but it was friday you know may
2: 13th that was all the arctic turn stuff happened that day to give like some background usually you would expect zero arctic turns in all those places right i mean yeah you're, you're really talking about going from zero to 20s and 50s and in multiple little spots so and that's what was seen so there are probably hundreds
1: right, right. Yeah, you know, like more, like right? daniel irons is sitting down there at cape point doing these regular surveys there you know out at out of the tip of cape hatteras where you would expect him to get you know the odd migrant moving through but but not many like just like a trickle probably you know on on a typical spring cape may you'd expect maybe one or two per season, if that. Um, and then north of there, they start to become a little more regular, right? Up on the Massachusetts coast because they do breed down to what? Southern Maine, uh, but still still rare, right, Marshall?
0: Yeah, for sure. They, they, yeah, it used to be more common breeding in Eastern Massachusetts. It's like a lot of birds, one that's declined. So it's really hard to pick up a breeding um, Arctic now. There may not be, any pairs, if there are, it's a matter of pairs, but, um, yeah, like the, the place where we did our big day Monomoy, you can pick up summering arctics and tip of province down, but that's it. Like right. you don't, you don't really see them from the coast. Right. And even, even some of the coastal counties in Massachusetts had zero records until this event and inland, I, I actually found one in May coming back from Ithaca in one of these like late May thunderstorm events. And was super psyched about that. And that was one of like just a handful of inland records for the state.
1: Yeah. And so like know,
0: after this event we had fifty.
1: So like rare along the coast. Inland, really rare. Super rare. Really rare. And you yeah. know, here we were and and, and actually the, the you know, Friday, you know, people were not clued into this here in Philly, um, and eastern Pennsylvania as much. There was, I think, one, the one at Marsh Creek was found. There's one or two others inland around here, but actually Saturday was a bigger day um, here for Arctic turns. And who knows how many we missed on Friday. But, um, but yeah, there was one, pre, to my knowledge, there's one just, you know, a little microcosm here, Philadelphia. I think there was one previous record with Hurricane Irene in 2011. And I don't know how many were seen uh, last weekend, Saturday, Sunday. Most were on Saturday, but there were even a couple on Sunday. Um, but at least a half dozen to a dozen, maybe even more. So, you know, that's a little snapshot there. Uh, here we inland uh, in Philly. Um, so,
2: Atlantic um, Arctic terns seem to migrate. You know, from tracked individuals, they they head south from Arctic spots. Like most of the, I think. Banding's been done on the European side, you know, the tracking, but they head down kind of mostly straight to West Africa and then they split, you know, some go down the African side, some the South American side, and they come back mostly um, towards the African side of the Atlantic. Then they really move westward towards essentially, you know, the Florida but stay well offshore, and that point bend northwards to then eventually get into that Grand Banks, uh, George's Bank area where they fatten up on, on the way north. So it sort of implies to me that these birds that were maybe hundreds hundreds of miles out, um, moving in their normal, routine ways out in the middle of the ocean, you know, well outside of where most people actually do pelagics, got blown in. Is that what's the thought?
1: Yeah, Marshall, uh, I'd be curious to hear your take on this cuz I had the same question as how, how do you see that this mass of you know how, how would you describe what what we saw?
0: Yeah, I mean some of some of my questions were sort of what Alvaro just went over there was like you know what are the what are the what is the exact route that we that we know uh, because we do have tracks and I I hadn't dug into that yet but I'd sort of envisioned that it was like Grand Banks George's Bank were important staging grounds and and i i think that makes a lot of sense like that's sort of the like great place to for birds like that to fatten up and we generally don't see them on east coast pelagic trips not in the types of numbers i mean when you think about arctic tern it is a super abundant bird like like there are a lot of those birds up in the up in the arctic and yet those of us on the east coast like basically never encounter them like maybe you you know, if you, if you do Cape Hatter's pelagic trips, you see some. Yeah, but not many. Even, yeah. 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 Um, and every now and then there's sort of like one of these Portlandica for summer types that's hanging out with a turn flock south of where it should be. But otherwise it's sort of like occasional inland fallout, occasional pelagic trip and these occasional wanderers. So, so they, their sort of whole migration, um, is just a little bit outside of the burger covered zone, um. So yeah, I think it takes, you know, I I think that's exactly what happened was there was a big bunch of them moving, you know, moving north or staging up there already that, that got displaced by these winds. And, and then once they ended up in the wrong spot, then I think a lot of additional interesting questions happen about like, what, you know, what, what were these birds trying to do that they basically got wrong right? and why?
1: And it, Uh, and it took them a while to move out too. Like, I mean, it, it really did.
2: And, you know, you, you think too about what other, this could explain why they weren't associated with, you know, the Redneck grebes and the Scoters. They were just, they were way out offshore, hundreds of miles out, got blown in, at least a proportion. But then, you know, you would think that you might get maybe a Jaeger or two like those. That That would be the group that I would think might be following them or being in that same offshore route, particularly long-tailed Jaeger. Um, but nothing, right?
0: Yeah. So, so
2: interestingly, the,
0: I mean, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to get us off Arctic turn because I think there's a couple more interesting things to do, but the one other bird that seems to have been like affected in really interesting ways by this system is Wilson storm petrel. Wilson storm petrel in New England is a late May to early June bird, but for some reason, on May 1st, we had some reports from the Gulf of Maine this year with with good photos showing their Wilson storm petrels. So, it seems like there was some maybe early push into pelagic waters that are generally under surveyed. And then, you know, as part of this system, there was so much coastal fog that people couldn't really survey the, you know, the coast very well. And you know, probably there was a mass, you know. Bunch of people going to look for Arctic turns and ignoring the coast um, when the Arctic turn thing happened. But our first indication of it was on our big day, and we went to my patch, and I and I was crestfallen. We got there and it was socked in fog, <laughs> and this spot is like it's a it's a sand spit that basically sits out sticks out into the into the ocean and so we were there for all these ocean birds to to try to get the flock of scoters that sits well offshore and the the purple sandpipers there on the distant rocks and the great cormorant that sits on a you know pile of rocks that's like a mile it was offshore. land
2: yeah so we got there and i was like oh man
0: we might miss everything and so i was like start listening for black scoter to sing start listening for Rosie at turn to call and we'll walk out there and do what we can. <laughs> and we walked out and, and the, the fog lifted just enough. So we got red threaded loon. We got all three scoters. There was a long tailed duck that I thought we had no chance at that happened to be close to shore. So I was like, okay, this is all coming together pretty well. We still missed the great cormorant and the purple sandpiper. But in the middle of trying to spot all these things, Liam waters looks back behind us really close to shore and says,
2: Oh my God, it's a
0: storm petrol. And I said, I probably said out loud, oh my God, it's a leeches because it had to be a leeches because it's mid May. And there was this, these winds in the system that probably pushed pelagic leeches close to shore, but we looked at it and it was a Wilson's just pitter pattering along right next to shore. It was a Wilson storm petrel, which I've seen there a few times in July when kind of these seabird events happen, but never in May. And so that was really weird, but we were psyched like major bonus bird. We got Wilson storm petrel. Then we went to Monomoy and you got to take a boat out across an inland bay to get to the tip of Monomoy. And while we're doing that, storm petrels are flushing the whole way. <laughs> so there were all these Wilson storm petrels, like close to shore in this event too. Um, they might be down there today. I haven't been able to get back to the coast to, to see Cape May was seeing the same thing.
2: Fog seems to be uh, important in storm petrol, um, miss, you know, disorientation. It, it seems to be, here, when we have really foggy pelagics, so sort of some of the normal storm petrels like Ashy are way closer to the shore, and I don't know if um, how to explain it exactly because you would think that a bird that spends all of its time offshore and does a lot of foraging at night would have no problem with fog. But there's something about fog. I don't know what it is exactly, but you notice it real foggy day. I always tell people watch for Ashy, you know, early in the trip, and often we we get them like at one. They're just individual.
1: Maybe, maybe they navigate mostly using polarized light.
2: (laughs) Well, how about at night, though?
1: Yeah. Well, there's, there is that. Yeah.
2: The discussion of fog
0: like gets me to like, let's say what we think happened on Arctic Turns. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm happy to go. I'm, I'm sort of interested to hear Alvaro take a stab at it but the the piece that's important to know is that you know we had these howling northeast winds um they slack they slacked off like i'm not even sure what the winds were on the friday but they were light and basically insignificant in terms of like movement like i i think you can think of it as like a calm day and there was dense coastal fog from cape may to probably south of Cape May to Cape Cod in a strip right along the coast. (laughs) So that if you were a few miles inland, it was not foggy Hmm. and that the turn fallout, I, I think you can basically say started at the first freshwater bodies inland from the coast and extended into central mass and, and I don't know what Northwestern, New Jersey, um, Northeastern Pennsylvania on that day.
1: Hmm.
2: Fog that fog line is special. I, I know we've got some some um aspects of vagrant birds here, uh land birds, when um when you have coastal fog, you know, really low, low cloud, really isn't quite fog in that the, the bottom part really is open, but it's it's hitting the mountain, you know, the the coastal mountains and at that interface you can get uh, fallout of of vagrants and migrants where they just don't want to go into the uh, the cloud or they're coming out of the cloud and dropping out in the clear. So you wonder if there is a general bird behavior where you drop out of, you know, you sort of get out of that fog zone into the clear zone and you're like, okay, uh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel okay here. I'm going to hang out, you know, or, or something. Um, maybe that could be part of it, you know, that sort of fog line. The other part could be that if maybe there's tons of birds in the fog, you couldn't see them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Just kind of throwing
1: out ideas. Yeah, that's the fun part. Is this something different like this? Hard to know. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean that the the things with this that seem interesting to think about are that Arctic terns, you know, probably have a couple different modes of movement. One is sort of like moving over ocean, like potential to stop and feed at any point. Like maybe they're moving, you know, 50, couple hundred feet up sort of, you know, you guys have seen more on pelagic trips than I have, but you know, it's often like turn flock, you're doing a horizon scan, you see a turn flock. Um, so there's that, I, th- I think they also like most birds go stratospheric when they really want to cover ground. Um, so we got all these exhausted Arctic terns that haven't been able to feed for a week. And they don't want to be where they are. Um, are those Arctic terns going to think like I wanted to jump overland? You know, I wanted to be in the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, let's say, and they start to make that jump. In which case, I think they would go stratospheric and like try to make that jump. Or what I what I'm sort of starting to like is the theory here is that they're 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 trying to kind of move north and east, you know, or you know north north out of this place where they're displaced from and end up in dense fog sort of flying in that dense fog and then they sort of lose the ocean and do exactly what you just said like when the fog breaks they realize they're over land oh there's a lake down there like I'm not where I wanted to be I'm going to drop and feed for the day and and get my bearings and and things cuz it sort of feels like the the fact that this was so close to the coast rather than scattered you know, all the way from here to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which maybe would be like the next destination for overland moving turns. Um, Felt like it was sort of birds in coastal mode rather than birds in like long distance jump mode. Um, Hmm. But again, I think I'm the only one who looked at saltwater for, for Arctic turns on that day. I saw um, Shoei Mitra looked at, looked at kind of the North side of Long Island and had some, like right at dusk on that same day, you know, once it was evident that something was happening, but, but I bet if more people had, there would have been more birds. You know, if you could see offshore, I bet we would have seen, you know, some directed Arctic turn movement kind of going past, but who knows? It's like, you know, just interesting stuff
1: really
2: is. I I want to say that, you know, uh, this level of, of, of conversation about vagrancy, it's um, it, I think a lot of newer birders probably don't, um, haven't been thrust into the, the, this thought pattern of trying to decipher migration, vagrancy, and just fallouts and so forth. Um, but it's definitely, I would say the, the school of Ned probably that we all kind of come from in different ways.
1: Ned Brinkley. Uh, Yeah.
2: of Ned Brinkley. Yes. You know, of, uh. And and people before him and that um, who have been thinking about this stuff for a long time, and I think all of us love the puzzle, right? We we want to get answers, but we also just love the discussion of it because the discussion itself unravels questions, um, and uh, you know, w- little by little, we we arrive at some some understanding and predictable. Some things become more predictable, which. Uh, Means that we're on the right track here and there, Um, but I think uh, for a lot of folks that are listening to this, just taking in all the 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 sort of conversation is part of the understanding of all this. You know, like and I think uh, so many of us and a little older, been around this for a while. This is part of what we really love about birds is talking about lost birds, and that and makes you understand. How migration works, in a sense, how non lost birds do this stuff. The oddballs teach you about the normals, in a sense. You know, yes. So it's not just about rare birds. Rare birds are cool, but it's also about understanding how they got there. Average birds. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you agree with that kind of sentiment of the whole thing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like in something like this, we, you know, we're, we, I feel like all of us are trying to kind of piece puzzle pieces together to try to feel like we have a a good picture of what's going on. And all of a sudden you get an event like this and you're like, Oh wow, there's like a puzzle piece or two. I didn't even know about, you know, that like, right. that we need to like, we need to, we need to get that thing in place. Cause this picture is not complete. Um, and, and,
2: and when they're like this, um, I wouldn't, I don't want to say once in a lifetime event, but you know, once in 10, 20 year events um, it, it really is so different that you think, well, this is major. There has to be some real overlying reason for this to have happened. I, it kind of reminds me of that that one year where the bristle-thighed curlew mm-hmm. showed up on the west coast, and they were in multiple places, and and there was later in, you know, um, an analysis of how that worked. It's a great and article. What happened. Yeah, I forget who wrote yeah. that. But it was a great
1: article in North American Birds that I think Ned was the yeah. editor for.
2: Yeah, so it's uh these these special events are are actually in particular really good about teaching you something about you know arctic terns which are common birds yet we still don't know exactly what they do.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, these migration champions. We know they're champions yeah. of migration, but we still yeah, yeah so a lot to learn.
2: Steve oh. Feldstein, that was the um Feldstein. Um yeah, the the person who wrote that article on the on the curlews, Steve.
0: That I mean the really exciting moment that we're in now is that we we just don't have enough people in the room on this call to to give the really good answer because we're at a point now where we i think we know all the puzzle pieces to really put this together because we have people who've you know done geolocator studies or satellite sat tag studies on what arctic terns normally do i just don't have it in my brain like <laughs> like what are these like individual level jumps that arctic terns are doing like where are the staging grounds how high are they flying when they're migrating in ocean mode versus overland mode. What's the route that they take overland normally? How, like how unusual is it? Um, I mean, it does make me wonder are all the inland Arctic turns that we get in kind of PA, you know, Western new England, upstate New York, like how many of those are sort of the big flow of intentional jumps that are grounded. And it's a rare event to ground them versus birds that were actually like a little bit displaced off their Northward movement, you know, like do, do all the Arctic turns really shoot for shoot for the grand banks and jump in from there. Um, but it, yeah, like, you know, when you get an event like this and really start, start diving into those questions, one of the things I love is like I've known sort of generally about Arctic turns for a long time, but it just raises all these questions. that are like, hmm. Oh, I want to know, I want to know it in more detail now about, you know, how do they do this migration strategy? And, um, the infos out there if if you got the time to dive into it so yeah um, it, it'll be a fun one to really i, I hope there's a bristle curlew esque article on the on the arctic uh, tern so we can all soak up
1: yeah and yeah, that would be that would be cool yeah well um i did i raised this book um alvaro you raised it on a previous podcast um uh, vagrancy in birds by Alex Lees and James Gilroy. We thought, uh, with Marshall here today, that this would be a great, um, time to, to look at what is really an awesome new contribution to, um, to our understanding of birds. And like you were saying, Al, rare birds are awesome, but it's what they can teach you. Um, and, and what they tell us about what their species normally does that yeah. is really valuable, uh, it, it, as exciting as they are to see, you know, someplace they should never be, you know, yeah. uh, it, it's there. there's there's so much they can teach us. And this is something that Marshall has spent a lot of time on and and uh, and that, and, you know, like as a
2: it's a just random example, I opened up the book and this is like a a. Princeton is, uh, I guess, they're the folks that publish it here in the U.S. and Canada, right? Princeton University Press. I've opened it up, and there's an Antarctic prion, which is a kind of seabird from the you know, far south. Prions are really cold water, far south things. But in, in Chile, for example, when you get a vagrant prion in the north or near tropical areas, it's the broad-billed prion, which is really, really, really unusual. Like They all show up. At closer to the equator than the average prion. So these are vagrants, they're often sick or they're dead or whatever. And you think, well, hold on, why? First it was like, this is wrong. That shouldn't be up there that far north. And then you think, well, hold on, maybe this, these vagrants are teaching us about what those birds actually are doing. And they're perhaps way further north, only the Broadbills, not you know, the Antarctics and others. And, and uh, they're out there in such small numbers, densities, that you're not going to see them on a pelagic trip. But these beached or sick individuals may be telling us about how that species is different from the others, right? So one, th- one way to sort of say is like, oh, yeah, we got a rare bird. B is maybe that is telling us about their actual natural biology that we had no way of knowing. Other than by looking at the vagrancy records, and I think that's one of the things I love about rare birds, is just random stuff like that, right? I mean, and it goes all the way back to when f- people first realize, oh, okay, these forktail flycatchers are flying the wrong direction. That's why they're winding up in northeastern U.S. and Canada. At the time, they should be in Argentina, but you
1: know, that's the and, that's kind of the classic. Uh, example that a lot of folks look at. And if, if people, um, you know, kind of want to sink their teeth in here.
2: And Marshall, would you say, I mean, both of you guys, is this the first book ever on vagrancy? Like as a
1: book? As far as I know, I mean, there's the rare birds uh, books that have covered some of the mechanisms, but none that I know of Marshall, maybe, you know, of an, another publication that really is devoted to vagrancy.
0: No, I think that's, I think that's right. I, but, but the, it's always been the intro material in the sort of rare birds books, like the, you know, the California bird records committee book has some good discussions of sort of what's going on with these vagrants at the beginning. And the, the, the one I looked up here, the um, so Alex Lee is James Gilroy, like, they have a 2009 kind of intro material um, in rare birds where and when analysis of status and distribution in Britain and Ireland. And for me, that's been like one of the gold standards for sort of going through some of the some of the mechanisms that that actually drive vagrancy. Um, so these guys have been thinking about it for a really long time. Um, I overlapped with Alex Lee's at, at the Cornell Lab for for a couple of years when I actually lived in Ithaca. And it was great fun, both birding together and getting into some of the vagrancy ideas. Um, cause there's a lot of things that have been sort of hot debates, especially in European circles for sort of like what's really going on here. But, um, I'll start with one of my pet peeves, which is that like vagrancy is a real throwaway term. It's like this umbrella for a whole bunch of different biological, um, behaviors that birds are exhibiting that aren't really tied together by anything beyond like they generate birds that are unusual in places and make birders excited right <laughs> so like a male a immature male hooded warbler overshooting in spring you know gets exciting up in new england and 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 stuff but that's totally different from like a lost immature hooded warbler that shows up on the west coast in fall, right? Like different things are happening there, which is totally different yet again from those few hooded warblers that end up offshore. And and Alex Alex and James cover it really well in this book. A bird ends up offshore, like what's its play? Either you turn around, and you got a headwind. You turn around and you fly into the headwind and spend a lot of energy and maybe you make it back to shore or you try to like ride the wind, kind of navigate with the headwind and try to get back to land somehow, or you just say, I'm going to fly with a tailwind and cover as much ground as I can and try to get to land hope for the best. I'm, I'm really in trouble now. And that, that last strategy, that's probably what gets warblers to England or the Azores um, and hooded warblers end up there. So to me, like you can't have an intelligent discussion of vagrancy as one thing, you got to break it down into like the different types of types of vagrancy. And then it, then it gets really interesting to think like, you know, wandering black-browed albatrosses that show up at Gannet colonies, which is what's on the cover of this book is something really different from hurricane-tossed city turns making it to the Great Lakes. Or
1: fork-tailed flycatchers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or forktale flycatcher. We can have a whole discussion on that one. I was going to say the,
1: and, and um, yeah. And, and to your point, Marshall, the the intro matter of this book is, I would say, really required reading for anybody that wants to uh, to, to understand um, how birds move. Uh, not not the physics of it, but the the navigational part. Uh, and and to your point, Marshall, he it, initially he describes we have to decide what a vagrant actually is. You know, what is a vagrant? So he goes on to define that, and then he says, and in doing so, he discusses the four um compasses that birds use and that's what i was kind of getting before is polarized light they use polarized light they use the sun they use stars and they use magnetic field um to to navigate and uh as well as some other other things uh, but those are the kind of the four primary ones and then he gets into the mechanisms uh, mirror image misorientation um overshooting and and even within these there are Kind of sub, subheaders, And the one that I kind of like, the fork tail flycatcher, the map we were actually discussing just before we started recording, um, is something I've talked with both of you guys about that has always perplexed me and is the fork flycatchers, right? Like they, they do, they make, and, and I think Alvaro, we talked about this with the, uh, the Elanias that turned up, um, last year, um, the small build Elanias was like, so they do a successful migration. Like they, right. They, they have one successful initial migration. How do they then screw up? And I, and what that map shows is the magnetic flip. Once they get to the other side of the equator, they don't account for the magnetic flip. Some of them. Now there may be other um, variables as well, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, of course that makes, that makes a lot of sense. A chunk of them, I'm sure that would explain. Uh, and that was such a cool piece of information to get. And there's a bunch of other things yeah. like that.
2: Yet birds don't actually know north and south. They know poleward or equatorward. You know, like as as sort of the angles of of the the magnetic field. So yeah, you can be thinking you're going south when you're going north if you're not attuned to it. And in fact, birds across the the equator have to have like a a, a switch. You know, somehow in their program to so say oh it's okay for the. Uh, for you to be going towards the pole again, you know. <laughs> sort of like right. that, that kind of wrong thing. pole. Oops. Um, yeah. yeah. And and there's 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 evidence that some of the you know there are some forktail flycatchers that go the wrong way in their first migration and wind up in Tierra del Fuego as well. You know, so there's uh that's a different vagrancy. And that bird may never get to North America, of course, but then from Argentina, let's say flies to Venezuela, winters over there then it does the wrong migration, that second migration. Yeah. And, and could it be that some things click on at a certain age or? Time? Right. Maybe
1: developmental point, yeah, even. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it looks like human disease. You know, it ha- some diseases happen after a certain number of years that you're more likely to have it or whatever. You know, I mean, could be a, a similar thing to that. Um, um, obviously, most vagrants tend to be youngsters. So, so, so one of the, a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, one of the fun
0: things with fork Flycatcher that the, um, y- you know, again, like this ocean of new information that we're all swimming in right now gives us is, you know, we have, we have tracks for individual fork Flycatchers now. And I don't think it's really this like northward to Venezuela, back south type thing. It, it seems like it's more kind of northward to northwestern, um, like Amazonia for a little bit. And then up into Venezuela, where there are these big kind of concentrations in the Llanos and stuff like near the coast, and then a southward movement. And so that you sort of end up with, I think, three sort of moments where photo flycatchers could make mistakes that could bring them to North America. And the first is sort of the overshoot scenario. And, and that's why I think a lot of the spring records end up concentrated on kind of the western Gulf Coast. Um, you know, they're sort of taking the straight line to... Um, you know, Eastern Peru, Southeastern Colombia, and overshooting. And then you have these birds that, you know, are sort of moving from there to Venezuela. And there's a, there's a chance to kind of overshoot that and get caught offshore. And then there's another chance when they're sort of like, should, should be doing that jump now down from Venezuela to Argentina where they go the wrong way. And that's, and that's like our September, October peak, (laughs) um, on the East coast, uh, but like, I haven't totally wrapped my head around it all. I was going to say, that's, that's it's, dizzying. It's, it's I mean, <laughs> super, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. And this I, is all with just the migratory, you know, T.S. savannah nominate ones. Yeah. You know, we got a few other subspecies in the mix that increasingly, or at, at least the northern one is being found in, in Texas and in Louisiana in sort of a different pattern of winter, you know, kind of winter winter birds that are happening. And those are the northern um, I think sort of it's always, always in Northern hemisphere. Isn't there a
1: Farallon's record for the Northern one as well? I think there's like a, I think there's I like a know. specimen or something. I can't, I can't remember. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but.
2: We, we talked about this whole thing um, of 4 flycatcher is a really obvious bird. You know, it sits out in the open. It's got a huge long tail, it's
1: black. Although that one that just turned up in out. Illinois was about as kind of fugly yeah. as they get. That one was, yeah. <laughs> that one was not, not the best, but no offense to any bird. But, the,
2: yeah, it's like they're like, hey, that was my life, <laughs> um, but but the thing is that um, f- there are a lot of other migratory small birds in in Aust- the Austral system in South America, like the small billed alanius, you know, the Chilean white crested There's, you know, a, a bunch of others that are probably being. Um, overload yeah, crypto-vagrants um, we've
1: talked about before. Crypto-vagrants yeah. and even— Swift.
2: Vermilion flycatcher, right. believe it or yeah. not, you know, sort of the uh, the, the migratory vermilion flycatcher from the south. It could, it could be showing up and nobody would ever know— Tropical kingbirds, you, you know. keyed into it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's sort of—there's a lot of other stuff that might be less, um, you know, not on people's radars, um, swallows and so forth, you know, et cetera.
1: Yeah. One of the one of the chapters I haven't actually looked at yet that I would look forward to checking out is the penguins because um, people don't think about them as vagrants, yeah. but of course, you know if you if you start looking at um, wildlife books, natural history books, and for, for the Southern Ocean, you do there's incredible numbers of uh, vagrant penguins. But then you start looking at these humble penguin records up in Alaska and so forth. I hope uh, I hope he gets into and talks about those a bit. I haven't actually looked at that. I know how. Talked a little bit about that in his rare birds book. Um, But uh,
2: I, I, I'm firmly on the side of those are many or some are natural. That's what I
1: think they gotta be. Right. But I think it just, it's another case where this just blows people's minds too much that they can't accept that as a possibility.
2: And, you know what? To me, what, what part of what sells it is people sort of usually say with these southern seabirds. Well, you know, you got to go through the doldrums or whatever. It's really tough. There's no food. There's no wind. But if you're a penguin, you just carry a huge amount of fat with you. Um, you can you can move Coast. great distances yeah. without without having to feed. Um, that's what they do. And uh, you could easily get even a, a Magellanic penguin um, moving north, and they're migratory too. So that you know. They they naturally move, you know, thousands of at least hundreds, if not you know, low thousand kilometers every year. So um, why not? I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm on the penguin
1: team. Penguin. Yeah, man, I'm yeah. with you. I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm you know, I'll, I'll be your wingman anytime. You
2: know? <laughs> Wing, wingman, a little short wingman. Yeah, little little <laughs> little a Top Gun man.
1: reference there for those that are excited about the Maverick movie coming out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's one, one kind of cool case that's covered really well in this book that is topical to New England recently. Um, and it's, I I think for people that, you know, are really paying attention, it's, it's not news, but I think for a lot of birders it is. So, you know, pheasants and grouse are something you basically expect there to be no vagrancy in these birds. Right. They this should, should be one of those far.
1: chapters like the toadies, where there's a single sentence that just says they don't move, and that's it. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. but it's not.
0: And there's a bunch. There's a bunch of those families in here, right. but uh, the the pheasants and grouse are, are a really interesting one because we have a few of these parts of the family that are super migratory, and so like the Caternix quail group is one in in kind of the old world, but in the new world it's ptarmigans, and uh, you know just just three weeks ago, the hot bird news in Massachusetts was, you know, someone, someone spotted a ptarmigan walking on the side of the road and put it in eBird. And immediately, there were all these people saying like, is, you know,
1: escapee or
0: is, yeah, yeah, is this an escapee right. out of a cage? Right. And it was just like, no, <laughs> these things move a ton. And there's all these records of like flocks of a hundred flying out in the middle of the Bering Sea yeah. and landing on, on the boats water. And yeah, like remember there's um, that
1: one where they have them. There's actually ptarmigans sitting on the water out there. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and there's and there's precedent, th- you know, throughout New England and kind of Great Lake states. Of interestingly, in May, you know, you sort of think like, ah, oh, they, they probably would come down in February when the big snowfalls yeah. hit, but it's May. I can't explain why, but in it's early a, June, it's a, yeah. It's a pattern, yeah. like late April to early June, that's when willow ptarmigan vagrancy and rock ptarmigan vagrancy happens. Um, so, and and it, as it turned out, there may have been three different willow ptarmigans, all pure white, in Massachusetts within the, within the same one week window in April. Um, but huh. a lot of it's kind of like breaking news on Facebook that like there's a lot of details to still be tracked down.
2: Yeah. Wow. Wow. No, it's vagrancy is, is, it's incredible. And, you know, really recommend this book. I, I wish it had more maps, you know, um, in terms of um, trying to, un- instead of just describing patterns of movement, just, you know, show us the pattern of movement. Um, but um, there's a lot of good photos. I was going to say for um, the visually
1: inclined, there's a lot of eye candy photos. You guys even have photos in there. You know, you guys, I saw b- really? both of you guys have photos. Alvaro's got the rusty back Monjita from, uh, from chile that i was i was like i was like wow that's so cool and i was like oh that's alvaro's photo and then i saw marshall from your attu cruise there's the uh, red-breasted nuthatch sitting on dave wolf's shoulder there pretty cool
0: super super blurry as as most of my photos are but <laughs> I, that one was like a, a a brief moment where it sat right on his shoulder and he sort of looked down at
2: it um yeah so that was I'll, kind of a fun one i'll also mention that you know Rufus Tailed Robin. Anytime you see photos oh, of that thing, a hermit thrush. You, like, you know, yeah. It's like most people would say, "Oh, that's funny looking little hermit thrush." Whatever, move on. Yeah. You know, but so, yeah. So everybody focus on Rufus Tailed yeah, Robin. Yeah, really. And learn I, that bird because you might find it one. I day. was
1: I was there for the first North American one on St. Paul, and it was it was. I mean, luckily it was at St. Paul, so people looked at it on St. Paul Island. But yeah, elsewhere they could easily just yeah yeah they're kind of short
2: tailed but otherwise the coloration's pretty strange.
1: well the photo that they have of a Rufus tailed robin in this book is i would say especially hermit thrush like I was like oh, right. this really is, but uh yeah, one of the ones I liked actually th- was um a couple examples um were was the there's a dipper record from atu um now like imagine like going to attu and like you know, looking for, you know, you know, I don't know, fallouts or rustic buntings and, you know, pine buntings and and every, you know, whatever else, cuckoos, cuckulus cuckoos. And all of a sudden you got a dipper rolling around in one of the, the valleys there. I mean, that would be, you know, as vagrants go, I think that would really, that would really knock my socks off. And one of the other things it talks about, and this was a bird that I've Uh, individual record that I've spoken with you guys both at some length about, and I believe Marshall, you and I actually disagreed about on, uh, (laughs) to some extent was the black backed Oriole. Um, the end essay of the book kind of talks about where the study of vagrancy is going and, um, and what it means for birders and, Uh, the economic, the economic impact even that rare birds can have on a particular region. They discussed how over a two month period, uh, over a quarter million dollars was infused to this little community in Pennsylvania where this black-backed Oriole was. Um, and that was one, actually you and I went and saw that, didn't we? We saw it, I think the very first day you, me and Tom Johnson, Holly Merker, I think all went together if I remember right. Um, first day was were you there was that not you? okay, it was somebody else then yeah, I know it was me, Tom Holly, somebody else. I can't remember. I thought it was you but uh
0: i I did see it. I came down and uh we were doing a family thing, and the bird was close, so Holly and I went and saw it, and then you and I. Sat in the hotel lobby and had a fierce. Debate oh, that's right. Over, yeah, over that, over the whether it was wild or not. Yes. Um,
1: and as I recall, yeah, both Massachusetts and Connecticut records committees voted it down before the Pennsylvania committee saved the day, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and voted it uh, as as an, as a wild tape.
0: It's a it's a real interesting case. The one the one just line I'll get in here is that. Um, one of my main projects now at eBird is that we're we're trying to account for, for exotic exotic birds, escapee birds, mm-hmm. and in in the process of in the process of this, we're sort of going back through all the data that's been submitted and looking at like what are the just outlandish escapees that have been, you know, have turned up all over the world, and what are the crazy places that birds have been introduced, like Deuca Finch on Easter Island, like that was oh, yeah. kind of a a mind blower for me like oh wow like why why would people take that that bird out there and have a population of those out there Uh, but a
2: a lot of things from the mainland were introduced over there and some most of them actually just didn't survive but that yucca finch did that one did (laughs) sort of funny yeah
0: so that but there are some wild things that i mean maybe george is going to tell us that the long-tailed mockingbird from seattle also was a natural vagrant (laughs) we'll see, we'll see if he takes the bait, but it, but there, you know, there's a lot of people that keep a lot of birds all over the place and it, it makes it, it makes interpretation of these bird difficult vagrancy patterns, pretty challenging. And, and to me, the red flag is when there's something that doesn't really fit into other, other patterns. So I was a, I was a skeptic on raptors for a long time, but like I yield, like, any raptor can move almost anywhere. You mean like
1: the red exactly. the the red backed t- buzzard from Colorado kind of as an example or, or just yeah, yeah, like
0: I mean that like that's a yeah, really variable one. Variable hawks. Hawk yeah. now. Variable yeah. Hawk, yeah. Sorry,
1: like, I'm using old names. Old yeah.
0: names. Right. Did those things move up? But you know, Great Blackhawk in Texas and then Maine, like that's hard to argue. We got short tailed hawks wandering around the Great Lakes, zone-tailed hawks, you know, doing circuits all over the place. Yeah. Stellar sea eagle. Um, right. So, like raptors, just like we got to hand it to them, if they if they want to become a vagrant, they just start flying. of like
1: hummingbirds or them. orioles? Marshall orioles too.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's true for orioles, but that's what Ned um, used
1: to say: is orioles are the new hummingbirds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> orioles are the new hummingbirds. You know, um, um, just to, to put this in, you know, when we eventually end this episode i want you guys to all, <laughs> which
1: we will do folks We all, promise. Three,
2: all all three of us to come up with the one bird they would dream of finding locally in their patch one of their patches as a vagrant We've got a good one, I think. what it would be and and just you know it doesn't have to be reasons for it or any logic just kind of almost like the the one you sort of dream
1: mm-hmm.
2: of. i ah, like that ah. i like
1: that that's good that's good um you know, we are we are getting deep into it here. Um, I there was one other topic I wanted to wade into a little bit here, unless there's as, yeah. Is there unless there's any vagrancy stuff that you guys feel like you need to get out before we kind of move on.
2: Oh my god. I mean that was never ending ask right? us more about vagrancy because it just won't end. <laughs> you know, we'll we'll keep on talking about here.
1: get the book, folks. Highly recommended. Princeton Press always does good work, and this is a fine, fine example. Um yeah. Um there was, you know, the good people at eBird. Marshall put out a uh, a message to eBird reviewers recently. The long rumored split of Lillian's what is what is known as Lillian's metalark is imminent, imminent now. And um, there was the, the folks at eBird gave folks the opportunity, the reviewers, eBird reviewers, to kind of chime in and discuss what a new name for this bird might be. This is interesting in a couple of respects. One is that, you know, it's, it's cool to kind of crowdsource a little bit what a good name for um, this new bird is. And, it you know, this is a long overdue split. We got, we got the guy who wrote the book on New World Blackbirds here. We got the guy who is <laughs> deeply involved in updating the taxonomy at eBird. So I figured we, we gotta, we gotta touch on this, guys. And of, there's a bunch of names that were offered up. Um, maybe I'll just read a couple here for folks that have, haven't heard about this that were offered up as potential names, uh, for the, the metal arc. Um, there was white tailed, there was white cheeked, West Mexican, pale sided, pale cheeked, high desert. Golden breasted, desert grassland, Mexican, just desert meadowlark was an option, pallid meadowlark, Madrian Lillians, just leaving it as Lillians, was one one option. Chihuahuan was another option. Um now what do you guys think? I mean this you I I presume you agree the split's overdue. Where where do you come down on uh the name? maybe I'll start with you, Alvaro, as the Blackbird guy.
2: Well, um, I'll just say that this may be the first of more than one because Cuban metal arc needs to be
1: What about the, the
2: on. Colombian one? You know, um, you know actually maybe yeah. not. I think those, um, th- those are actually genetically kind of m- much more similar to Eastern metal arcs okay. than, than the Lillian's group is. So yeah. Um, it's, it's weird, weird, but that's one of the reasons why this Lillian's group comes out uh, in that even though it's, Almost adjacent to eastern, in terms of its range, it the easterns from Texas are actually more genetically similar to the ones from South America than they are to lilians. <laughs> so that you know that's kind of what's going on. And lilians isn't just lilians. It, there's a southern um, subspecies. It's auropectoralis. That's actually darker and not so. Um, desert based, I guess, in terms of coloration. So the whole desert thing starts falling apart in my, in my mind. Um, I like the fact that, uh, well, I, I'm surprised at the fact that nobody tried to think about something to do with voice because voice is actually very. Oh yeah. You
1: know, it's different well, In your book. And you know, like, what was, what? what's the mnemonic you gave? It was like chiles con tortillas or something was the mnemonic. You, oh, it's, 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 it's in there. It's so, yeah, it's I, like, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It is.
2: Yeah. yeah, I I wouldn't have made that up. I, that would have been something from from
1: a local know, person, uh,
2: Mexican book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so that yeah that could be that. Yeah, let's call it Chile con tortilla.
1: There you go.
2: I do like yeah. that. They were sort of the you know if you, anybody's ever heard of the Bodie McBoat face situation where they tried to you know ask the public to name this uh, boat you know, sh- ship you know out in in the UK and some. What, what what one was voting McMoFace, face, you know? And, uh, so you, you get the crowd, you know, working on things and sometimes they come up can, with oddballs. Can
1: be a little dangerous. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But on the other hand, um, there's that, I think, you know, there were some, some kind of goofy ones, but I do think it's interesting that the second highest vote was for Lillians. Yeah. Given the amount of, um, issue that people have had with birds named after people there's obviously a lot of people that are fine with birds being named after people and that's something worthy of attention as well as the other side of you know this whole conversation where we're going to get to somewhere i think we need to sort all through all that but um you know there's god I, i don't know if i have a favorite name there or anything i Nothing kind of stands out as like yeah, oh, wow. that's the one.
1: I'm me. surprised like, a non take on this. I thought I thought you were gonna have a. I thought you were gonna come out hot on this one.
2: No, I I don't know. I mean, it, the you know Madrian is is interesting. It's maybe people won't know what that means. Um, maybe that's good. Uh, There's lizards, you know, with the the word Madrean already on it and other other things that sort of give you this biogeographical. um, But I don't know. Referring to to this. Maybe Marshall. Referring
1: to the Sierra Madre for for, uh, Sierra Madre Occidental for folks that don't know. Madrean. Yeah, Marshall, where are you at? Uh,
0: Well, I I would say first, like, in doing this experiment, which was – you know, I mean Terry Terry Chester at the at the AOS, um, you know, was was really willing and interested in kind of getting this crowdsourced opinion, um, and and I I do think like you know maybe maybe there's a variation on this model that'll be really helpful in the future, um, so so I like that, but it also made me realize like I'm not a pollster and I probably should have run this past someone who like thinks about these kind of things, because um, to your point about the you know kind of uh Lillian's popularity in this poll 23 people had as their top top choice but that was out of 125 responses so it's like that's a lot of response you know, 20 20% put it as their top so yeah like there's a lot there's a lot of people but i, I think you know the if 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 you think of it as like a Lillian's or not Lillian's um Right. You know, the vast majority
1: wanted something else.
0: We're looking for, we're looking for something
1: else. It is a pretty Um, name like Lillian itself, I think is a pretty name. Like I can understand why people like it. And and also like, there's the familiarity. It's like, well, I like it. I don't want to change it. You know,
0: but yeah, Yeah. it was a it was a ranked, you know, ranked choice voting, which I think is uh, we could do other voting systems that way that, that might benefit us in the future. But uh, anyway, um, but but that you know that gives kind of a different different lens on it. But yeah, for for me personally, um, I think Madrean is interesting, but yeah, like sort those. of evokes evokes mountains to me, right? And you know these are sort of like the valleys between the mountains or the lowlands to the west of the mountains. So for me, it's I've I've been partial to Chihuahuan the whole time. I um, I think there it's very rare that you have a non Island endemic that has like a really good geographical descriptor. And I think when you juxtapose Eastern metal Western metal you know, I mean, Eastern metal not a great name for a bird that goes all the way down to Columbia. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. but, um, but when you have Eastern metal Western metal arc, Chihuahuan metal you sort of set up the, the range map for these things pretty well. They all look the same and, you know, Eastern and, and Lillians, although they're vocally distinct, they're more similar than they are different. They're certainly more similar to each other than they are to, to Western. Um, yeah. All the iterations, so first,
1: like, all the iterations of like pallid pale, none, none of that made much sense to me. Um, yeah.
0: And true. those, and those break down when you think about like, you know, first year Westerns that are super pale right. or, or even pale fresh versus pale. worn,
1: different individuals. And
0: yeah. Right. You know, or a pectoralis also, which I've, I've not, not seen, but, um, but, but to me, like, you know, a lot of the geographical descriptors, like they can be sort of the center of gravity of a bird's range and and be really useful. Um, and so, so, you know, we have Chihuahuan Raven. Like, that's not a bird that's unique to the state of Chihuahua or to the Chihuahuan Desert, but it sort of centers you both kind of geographically and habitat wise on on where these birds occur. So, to me, like, I think of Chihuahuan Ravens and I think of you know Sternella Lily and I. Um, and so Chihuahuan Chihuahuan metal arc—that's kind of what I like. And I think when I did a rank choice, I did that Madrean and Pallid because um, I did I did vote. But my my opinions are changing as you know they're evolving. Go. The, but the real my, my top choice hasn't changed. It's it's that.
2: I think one of the problems with Lilian's uh, separate from the if you if you you know disagree with naming a bird after a person is that we have this tradition of naming uh, the bird's name for women are given the first name of the woman rather than the last name of the woman, which is an inf- informal and to, to some extent sort of presumptuous, not, perhaps respectful yeah. in the same way as saying Wilson's right. storm petrol. Right. It's a, you know, it's not like Alex's storm petrol, you know, it's uh, it's Will
1: Sandy, he went so, by Sandy,
2: but yeah, it's, San- <laughs> <he Yeah>. <laughs> Sandy storm petrel, they'd be like, Well, no, it's not, it's quite dark actually. Um, so, so um, anyway, I, I think there's that issue as well. Um, and but I do like the ring of it, and I li- like the fact that Lillian's just sounds so different from any other. I love names that are different. Um, and but I, I didn't, you know, so yeah, I mean, I'd probably Chihuahuan would be the one I'd go with. Yeah, I, I, you know. I think
1: you've convinced me yeah i so i i'm with you guys i like chihuahuan i just love the sound of high desert metal arc and it makes me like think that there's like i, I can just imagine that there's sort of like a gun slinging harlem globetrotter out there you know and and i feel like it's that's just too tempting also like i just love like like
2: Actually, why do we call it metal meadowlark lemon right yeah
1: exactly yeah lemon <laughs> yeah. metal arc. yeah Lemon metal, arc. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like, I really like high desert metal arc, even though I realized that they're uh, like, I saw some of the discussion on that and, and some of the points about why that doesn't work as well ring true. I just still think it's a nice sounding name, high desert metal arc. Um, but I think, you know, what you say about Chihuahuan um, makes makes a lot of sense. I do like Madran just because the alliterative nature and when it comes to these names, I have to admit, like, like you, Alvaro, I like something distinctive. I like some, like, I hate, I hate generally, you know, when they did thick build long spur, I I found that infuriating. Uh, That name just to me is not really helpful or useful or interesting. I thought short grass would have been much, much better. Um, But um, something that is distinctive, different, Um, and, and so, you know, Chihuahuan, as you say, there's really, there's not a lot out there bird wise, aside from the Raven, really. Um, and, um, I, that, for that reason, I like high desert or desert. Um, both of those appealed to me. Um, and, uh, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel terribly strong about it, but I think it's cool that, uh, we're finally going to have this thing as, as separate.
2: I think, you know, if You actually broaden it out to the other, all the other metal arcs in South America and so forth. You know, then, um, this is a very US, uh, Canada centric set of votes. In some respects, I saw some people saying Southwest, right? Metal arc was only Southwestern, right. Relative to the
1: US, right? yeah. That one didn't make any sense. Um, yeah.
2: and you know, I, I, I. Think if you were going to call something desert metalark, maybe Peruvian metalark would be really the desert metal arc. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, and uh, you know there is a pampas metalark, pampas meaning grassland, flat grassland area. Yeah,
1: I'm getting to see that but, um, thing actually. Yeah.
2: You know, you you could sort of, you know, whatever the local name for a grassland is in in that part of Mexico might be another thing. But maybe it'll be well. We call this a pampa, so you know, it could be the same word, you know. For all I know, or or a llano, you know, a or a loika
1: loika metal art. So,
2: yeah, we, loica, we did yeah.
0: we did float it to uh some of our Mexican partners for for ideas, and and one that came up was like altiplano metal art. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's you know, sort of like that's confusing. Yeah, that sort of ends up in. You know, evoking South America. I think for a lot of a lot of folks, certainly, yeah, think about Peru. um.
2: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's these are complicated topics. In in that, it's really hard to come up with a really good name for some birds. Um, Other birds, you know, they have you know if 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 it was one if if it was one of a group of birds where the, it was the one with the yellow breast and the v on it and it was the only one you you'd obviously name it you know golden breasted
1: mm. Amarillo. something mm.
2: you know yeah but it's not it's one of 3 and maybe eventually 4 that have this yellow breast so that that that's not going to be helpful and um uh yeah uh and the song is difficult to quantify, you know, it's a low pitch song compared to the East, you know, but you don't want to call it like, you know, low pitch metal arc or something, you know, it's, it would have to be something a little bit more illustrative of what that song
1: tortilla. is like. Tortilla. Tortilla metal arc.
2: Tortilla. Yeah, tortilla. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, then, yeah, you have a whole bunch of folks give me like offensive, you know, that's an offensive name. <laughs> <laughs> <Sort> of, <yeah. laughs> but uh it's, it's a hard, hard thing to do. And I, I do think that Something we discussed earlier, just that the committee, the committees in North America are particularly good at doing the science of 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 taxonomy, but maybe not always the the right people to be choosing culturally, you know, culture essentially English names, and we probably need to have a process like this. Um, a broader process where people are from various backgrounds are being involved in the English name choices to get to things that actually we're all kind of happy with. I think it's a great move by you, Marshall Ebert and folks, yeah. you know, even at, the, at you know, the North American committee, like Terry, that's willing to sort of check this. Yeah. I think that's a strong move as well. Uh,
1: I like that. Uh, love to see, uh, you, you flush out so many great ideas this way, as well as some perfectly awful ones. But, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: I saw Puerto Rican metal arc was suggested which <laughs> it's like, <laughs> questionable. <laughs> questionable. I mean, yeah. I'm sure so, whoever suggested that was from Puerto Rico. <laughs> pretty I'm sure pretty that good. was tongue in cheek, but it's, Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> but maybe it's because, you know, like um the Puerto Rican uh tody is Todus mexicanus, right? So it'd be yeah. the yeah, maybe it's a whole like a real sort of second level <laughs> joke, you know? It's like the the Mexican toady that doesn't Mexico has no toadies. So there you go.
1: Nice. Well, guys, uh it is it is mid to late May here. It is mid to late afternoon. I think uh I think we should get to scrambling. I did see uh while we were talking, a beautiful adult little stint has been found at Heislerville in New Jersey. And I'm like, man, that is a beautiful looking bird. I might have to get out and get after that.
2: And that segues into what would be your dream bird to find locally. Marshall, you got one? Uh,
0: I'll say the one that I am always just always in the back of my mind is piratic flycatcher, which, you know, it, uh, and I want to, I want to hear it. Yeah. They've got, they've got a call that I know. We Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just feels like, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, they've hit kind of the central and West pretty, pretty hard, like in, in recent years, you know, nobody found them in the beginning, a bunch of Texas records started popping up, you know, New Mexico things. And it just feels like, you know, Florida's, Florida's got, got piratic. It feels like, feels like the East coast is due. And, uh, I don't know, it, you know, the, the things from South of the border that just, I don't know, That that's one I always think about. And it's and it'll probably be like a June or July thing in that period where like not a lot of people are out out looking and thinking about these things. So
1: That's a good one. And I do like I when in this in the neotropics, those things they call all day long and you hear them do that, like we do do do, 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 do 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 and you just they'll do it all day long and you think, Man, I can totally picture like walking along in, you know, the northeast someplace and just all of a sudden hearing one and being like, What?
0: I, and I, I mean, I know the way it's going to go down. I'll be like, I know that call. What is that call? Yeah. I have no idea what that call is. Like right now we're like, oh yeah, it's like, I know what that bird sounds like. But in context, when I sort of forget that I'm looking for this vagrant, it'd be, you know, is my brain going to click onto to piratic or am I going to have to just track it down and see? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and, and those, those moments where your brain just kind of gar- like connects with something, but is kind of scrambled also because it's so improbable. Right. Like, those so those out of context. Best, yeah. Yeah. Best moments that I've only had a couple times in birding, but I you just love them. So um, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good one.
1: Yeah. Predict that one. Yeah. I think for for me, um the 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 genus turtus has a couple birds that I've never actually seen um, that turn up in the northeast as vagrants, really rare. And where I live right now. I can picture, can just picture these evening flights of robins we get, especially in winter. I can just picture seeing a tortoise with white wing linings that is actually a field fair and not an American mm-hmm. robin. And I, that's a bird I've never seen anywhere. And if I could ever find one around here in Philly, um, that'd be pretty field pretty fair. awesome. Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. Siberian thrush would be cool too, but field fair. Would, well, you know, yeah, but
2: it's less. You know, little less, less likely, likely, likely where yeah. you live. Yeah. I, I always think of like going to bird, you know, sort of a more open spot with, you know, maybe one of the golf courses around here with, with some pine trees and stuff and some lawn. And seeing this oven bird kind of thing with my eyes and they look at it and go, oh my gosh, that's an olive back pipit. Mm. That's the one that. It's it's just weird looking. It moves like an oven bird. It's um, a vagrant that's shown up all over the world, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, including this part of the world. But it would be the one that I'm like, finally, or something, or just like, it, it was possible, but probably unlikely in my lifetime. Yet it could. Mm-hmm. Be, you You're know? primed for it. And it's a cool bird. Yeah. So I like it, you know. And it's easy to identify. I mean, pipits are generally hard to identify, but it acts and yeah, flies up into trees for totally starters. Yeah, that's pretty pretty yeah. bizarre. Pretty bizarre. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's the one I think.
1: <laughs> nice, very good, fellas. Well, we're at ninety minutes here. We ought to wrap up. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. And yeah, we'll be back soon. Alvaro Marshall, thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>